Well, before we get into our text today, how about I pray, and then we will start unpacking what the Lord has for us today. Lord, again, we come to you thankful. You are worthy of all praise and honor and glory from now through all eternity. And we ask that you would bless this time that we have together looking into your magnificent word. You have revealed yourself to us, and it is now our privilege to look into your word, to see what you have said, to hear from you in the Bible. And God, we ask together that though I am a fallen man, that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that what you have said in Scripture would be clear to your people. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you haven't noticed, much of the Christian life can be said as being in between. We are in between many things. There are several realities of life that are already, but not yet. Our salvation is a great example. If someone were to ask you if you're saved, you could say, yes, but not yet. Because the Bible says you are saved, past tense, being saved, present tense, and you will be saved, future tense. There's a salvation we experience now, but there's a full salvation awaiting us, a resurrection that awaits us, that we will be joined to Christ with glorified bodies, and for all eternity we will experience heavenly bliss for God's glory. But we're also in between in other ways. In this life on earth, and this is the only time in your experience that you will ever be able to say this, in your life on earth, you are in between God and the lost, aren't you? The Lord has left us here as witnesses. He is building His church that His church would be a lighthouse to a dark and dying world. And we are in between as ambassadors, as representatives, as proclaimers of the glory of God, of the good news itself. We've been entrusted with the message of hope. And in 2 Corinthians, really for the next few chapters through chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is going to be focusing on this reality, that we're just in between in this life. We're stuck here, and that's how it feels some days, doesn't it? We're stuck here. Yet there's work to do here because God has placed us in between Him and the lost. And we started last week looking at this reality where we beheld in the first few verses of this chapter that we are the people of hope who take the good news of Jesus Christ out into the world with boldness. God has given us hope and He's given us boldness in our ministry. Yet we also saw last week in verses 3 and 4 that there's another quote-unquote ministry at work. Satan himself has his own ministry of blindness. Satan works against us. We seek to bring a ministry of light out into a dark world, but the devil himself brings blindness, and the whole world is in his power. I showed you that verse from the end of 1 John, 1 John 5, 19, where it says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But there's good news for the world, isn't there? Because in 1 John 2, 2, the beginning of the book, we learn that Christ is the atoning sacrifice, not for our sins only, but for those of the whole world. And so we go to that whole world with a legitimate, a real, 
an authentic gospel, good news message, they can be saved. Well, Satan has authority in this age to work against people beholding and embracing the glory of Christ. And that's very fascinating and can be difficult to embrace because people beholding and embracing the glory of Christ is what we want, isn't it? That's the exact goal that we seek to accomplish is to help people embrace and behold the glory of Jesus. But Satan works against this. Yet there's good news for us today in our passage. We read that even though Satan is strong, God is stronger. Even though Satan has been given a measure of authority, God has more authority. He gets his authority from God. He's on God's leash. And the reason anybody is saved, the reason you're saved if you're here this morning as a Christian, is because God has displayed His power in your heart by overcoming the evil one. He has released you from the dominion of Satan. You've been set free from the curse of the devil to be joined with your Maker. And let's read this passage together, starting in verse 3, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 through verse 6. It says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Wow, that's magnificent, isn't it? Verses 5 and 6, I think, are probably worth memorizing for you. You should work on that. But we see here God's power. Look at verse 6 again. The same God who created all things, the one who said, let there be light, He is the one who has displayed His power in our hearts by shining the light of His glory, the knowledge of God in the face of Christ. For believers, God Himself has entered our hearts, bringing light from darkness. And this is a true miracle. If you ever ponder to yourself, if you believe that the miraculous still happens, this should be exhibit A, that anybody would turn to the Lord. That is truly a miracle because that's unnatural for a sinner. It is unnatural for a sinner to confess that in humility, he is a sinner worthy of death and that there's a Savior and a God other than himself. Being born into this world naturally, as each of us were, sometimes we refer to that as a miracle, but that's not. That's natural. Those are the processes that God has set up. He set up the world that this would naturally occur generation after generation. Being born is not a miracle. Being born again is a miracle. That someone would go from death to life spiritually, that someone would have his nature totally changed by the power of God. And what Paul is speaking of here isn't something theoretical. We do very well to remember that Paul himself had quite the dramatic conversion experience, didn't he? Let's look together back in Acts chapter 9. Just go back a couple of books in the New Testament to Acts, before 1 Corinthians and Romans, you'll see the book of Acts. And let's read this account together. 
Because Paul is talking about the bright light of God coming into our lives, dispelling darkness, saving us by His powerful glory. Well, this happened in a very dramatic way in Paul's life. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, you might see that his name was Saul. Before Paul was Paul, his name was Saul. Let's read about his conversion here. It says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless. Imagine that. Hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could not see anything. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So Paul here, in our text today in 2 Corinthians, is speaking of light. But here in Acts chapter 9, he encountered that light, didn't he? In a way that's likely different than any of us have ever experienced this light of God. He encountered light from heaven, and as a sinner, he was put in his place. Notice he was not able to stand. He wasn't on his horse. He was on the ground. And when a sinner comes in contact with the eternally holy, glorious God, that is the right place for that sinner, isn't it? On the ground. That's where Paul was. And there was immediate impact in Paul's life. If you were to read on in Acts chapter 9, you'll find out that he went to the house of a man named Judas. He was fasting and he was praying there. And God had prepared another man named Ananias, and he was the one that was to go heal Paul. And it was through this event that the Lord would touch Paul's life, give him his sight back, and fill him with the Holy Spirit. But if you drop down with me to verse 20, same chapter, verse 20, you'll see how Paul's life changed. After encountering this life, light, after coming to know the Lord, it says in verse 20, immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who were called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? What a radical conversion this was in Paul's life. He encountered the light from heaven, and he went from being a persecutor of disciples to being, he himself, a disciple of Jesus Christ. The veil of blindness was gone, wasn't it? We were reading in 2 Corinthians that there's a veil of blindness that lies over the hearts of the unbelieving. Well, that was true for Paul, too, and now the veil is gone in his life. And he sought to reach others a very natural response. 
If you have experienced the light of God shining in your heart through the gospel, if you've come to know the Lord Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, it is very natural and good that you would now seek to reach others for Christ, that you would want others to experience the light that you've experienced, that their eyes would be open, that they would be transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Yet the reality is, not everybody will be saved. Scales remain over the eyes of many, just as Paul was physically blinded. There are many who go through this life totally spiritually blind. This is why we call them the lost. They're feeling around in the darkness. They, they do not have the light of God. They don't have the glory of God. They don't have the gospel. They don't have the message of hope. They have no compass. They have no hope. They are disconnected from the covenants of God. They are estranged from the promises of God. They are totally, utterly lost in the darkness. God must intervene. For someone to come to know the Lord in salvation, it requires the powerful working of God. It requires the sovereign creator who said, let there be light, to enter into that person's heart and again say, let there be light. You notice in that account we just read of Paul's life that Jesus, when he interrupted Paul's progress, he didn't plead with Paul, did he? There was no begging on the part of Jesus here, was there? He wasn't down on his knees crying and, and pleading with Paul. But he encountered Paul as the Lord of glory, with all authority, speaking to Paul what was true. And this is what is still needed. Not that each of us would have a dramatic conversion experience like this. I believe that was quite unique to that apostle. But it is still necessary that the Lord of creation, the God of all power, would interrupt our lives. It is still necessary that the one who is, has all the strength would come into a human heart and cause a person to be born again to a living hope. We plead on behalf of Christ. But God doesn't plead. In fact, in the next chap chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, we beg you. We are beggars and pleaders, aren't we, when we go out into the world. We just so deeply desire to see people saved. But God doesn't have to plead. When you're omnipotent, when you have all power and all authority, you never have to beg. Isn't that amazing? And here Jesus he wasn't begging, he was displaying his power. Turn with me to Acts 26, before we go back to 2 Corinthians, go to the, toward the end of the book of Acts. As Paul is recounting this experience, starting in verse 15 of Acts 26, he's before Agrippa, and he's explaining this conversion experience, how he met Jesus, and he's emphasizing here the power of the Lord that is necessary in salvation, because Satan must be defeated. Acts 26, verse 15, it says, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, 
that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And Paul adds, so, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. This is the reality, isn't it, that men must turn. Men must be evacuated from the dominion of Satan because that's where all people in their natural state lie. Last week, we also looked at Ephesians 2, the start of Ephesians 2, and it says, by nature, all people are children of wrath, following the prince of the power of the air, as 2 Corinthians 4 calls him, the God of this age. All people are in Satan's grasp until God intervenes. It takes the almighty power of God. Eyes must be open, darkness must vanish, and Satan must be repudiated. And fascinatingly, God uses Christians to get this done. God uses His people to do this in the lives of the lost. God will use as His means, instruments in His hands, those that He's already saved to go back out into the world and reach those who are yet to be saved. It says in Romans chapter 10, "...how beautiful are the feet that bring good news." Maybe you've been told before that you've got ugly feet. (laughs) To me, that's all feet. But God says, if you're a believer, if you've been equipped with the good news of hope, your feet are pretty. They're beautiful. They're glorious feet because those feet represent the carrying of a message out into a lost and dying world. And God will use the means of the evangelism of the church to reach the lost. Yet ultimately, salvation is rooted in His gracious and sovereign choice, just as He chose Paul. It takes God's intervening as we go out and plead with the world to be saved. And in our text today, go back to 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we see God's sovereign work emphasized here in verse 6 in this creation language that's used. What happened at your salvation? What happened the initial moment of genuine belief in your life when you first believed in the gospel? It says this happened. The same God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, He came into your heart, shining His light, giving the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Now, we weren't there. Nobody was there. But you can maybe imagine, use your imagination here, of what it was like when there was darkness, the the start of Genesis 1, before creation, before the world was, and there was just darkness, and God spoke all things into being, starting with the phrase, let there be light. Now, how fast is light? It's really, really fast, right? So when, you know, scientists start measuring things in light years and we calculate what is that in miles and all that stuff, it's just way, way, way too far beyond what we could ever grasp. Light is moving very, very quickly. God says, let there be light and just a burst forth of light comes shining. And creation now exists, and there's light in the darkness. He's dispelling darkness in creation. He's scattering the darkness with His voice. 
And the same thing happens in the dark, imprisoned human heart when God saves that person. A person is bound in sin. A person is in chains, in darkness forever. And yet God, in His power, comes along in His grace and speaks light into the heart of a sinner. Bursting forth like it's Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I mean, it's just this glorious crescendo of God's power, an amazing display of the omnipotence of God. And it happens in an instant when someone believes. This is a miracle, and it requires the strength of God. For death to be removed, for darkness to scatter, only the supernatural power of God can accomplish this. Robert Gramacki in his commentary says, Only God can remove spiritual darkness. For the veil and the blindness of sinful hearts to be taken away, God must sovereignly say, let there be light. And notice too in our text, verse 6, that this work must take place at the very core of who we are. This work of God has to take place in our hearts, not in a, a section of our being, not peripherally, This work of God has to take place at the deepest level of who you are. That is where the root of sin goes. It goes deep to the very core of who we are as human beings. And so our salvation must go there too. Our salvation, this light of God, must shine in our hearts, who we are in our essence. We, in our natural state, have this big problem. We are rotten to the core. But God gives us a big solution, doesn't He? He offers salvation that goes to the very core. He causes us to behold Christ, giving us knowledge of His glory. Verse 6 says that is what this light is. It's the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we behold the face of Christ not by going out looking for another human being like us, not going looking for images demanding signs. We behold the glory of Christ in the gospel. We behold the glory of Christ by reading about what Jesus has done to save us. We go to God's Word. We hear from God Himself as He has spoken and preserved His Word. And we discover that though we, by nature and by choice, rebelled against our Creator, kicked against the goads, as it were, and said no to God, that because of His love for us, He put this on display by taking on flesh, as we sang about this morning. He took on flesh. He was born of a woman, and He lived the life that we could never live. He proved Himself to be the spotless Lamb of God, the absolutely pure Son of God, the one who was set to take away the sins of the world. And He was obedient in all things. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Dying the death that we deserved in our place for our sins. And crying out at the last, it is finished. Because He paid the price in full. He didn't pay most of the price. He didn't put salvation on clearance so that you could now afford it. He paid the full price that If we look to Him, 
the author and perfecter of faith, if we appeal to Jesus Christ and what He has done, dying for us in our place, rising from the dead, ascending to the right hand of the Father, we may be saved. Not bringing any of our own works into the equation, not trying to fit baptism in there, not trying to shove in some sort of service or membership, not trying to you know, take a shape that just doesn't fit and cram it in. No, no, no. He paid it all. He was raised for our justification, it says, that we would be declared innocent once for all in the finished work of Jesus. And in believing this same book, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this same book tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In believing, God creates you over again. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. If you have never believed, is today the day of your salvation? If you've never trusted in this message, if you've never found yourself confessing Jesus as Lord, would today be that day? There's breath in your lungs as a gift from God. You should return that breath to Him in a sacrifice of praise, shouldn't you? When we behold Christ in the gospel, we're changed. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will no longer walk in darkness, but will have light. And that light is life. This is what Paul is talking about in our passage, that God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts. You may wonder, if this is a sovereign work of God, how then could we contribute to what God is doing in the world? How could we contribute to the solution of souls being saved? How could we be of any assistance to God who has all strength and might and power? Well, remember, we are the means that God uses. Romans chapter 6 talks about He has instruments in His hand, and we are those instruments. God is using us to accomplish His purposes we are the means by which He reaches the world. And this is so important because some might ask, well, what's the point? If God is the one who's doing all this, what's the point of us trying? Why don't we just pray that He'll do it? Well, the point is that you are the tool in His hand to reach people for Christ. And I think Paul tells us how we do that in the verse that precedes, verse 5, when Paul writes, "'For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord.'" and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. How can we combat the forces of darkness? How can we go out and be effective in service to God? I think there are two clear and two clearly important points in this one verse. That we preach Jesus Christ as Lord, and we present ourselves as servants to others. Now, when Paul says preach here in verse 5, I don't want you to see that as just me or Tyler, the preachers, okay? I don't think Paul has in mind here just the Sunday morning preaching. I think Paul actually has in mind a general proclaiming that certainly includes preaching, but a general proclaiming through life that all of us participate in. The whole of the Christian life is a proclamation. Your life, dear Christian is a continual proclamation to the world. You ever thought about that? Your life 
is an unceasing sermon. What are other people hearing? What are other people hearing from your life? Could you make it your goal that they would hear that Jesus Christ is Lord and that you are their servants for Jesus' sake? You see, in the Christian life, we can't just say, do as I say, not as I do. There's no legitimate excuse for hypocrisy where we say, well, yeah, this is what I'm going to preach, but I'm not going to live that way. Your proclaiming is continual. Your preaching is unceasing. The whole of your life is used of God to reach others. You think of all your deliberate efforts that you've tried to reach somebody with. And then when some person finally comes to know the Lord or some person finally shows up at church or whatever the goal is, you find out it's because some little thing that you weren't even thinking about. That person shows up because of something you said when your brain was like half off, right? That's because God is using the whole of your life. God is actively involved throughout your life, whether you're specifically trying to accomplish something or not. C.E.B. Cranfield speaking on this passage, says, One cannot sincerely or effectively preach Christ as Lord from the pulpit unless one is honestly trying to obey Him as Lord in one's own life, day by day. That's certainly true for those in the pulpit, but I think it's true for those in the pew as well. That the whole of our life is to be presented to Christ for His service. Verse 5 here is a very, very important verse. It's perhaps my favorite verse in the Bible. And I want us, as we finish the message today, to consider how we present ourselves to the world, both in word and in deed. Paul presents these two elements in this verse, the content of our communication and our manner of life. Let me read it to you again, verse 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. I really do think this is the theme of the Christian life found here, the goal, the motivation of the Christian life, to refuse self for Christ, to humble ourselves before the exalted Christ, that we would decrease and He would increase. And it does start with the content of our communication. Notice that Paul says here, led by the Spirit, that we are preaching Christ as Lord, We are not preaching ourselves, Paul says, but we are preaching Christ as Lord. Ambassadors are not to exalt themselves, are they? Ambassadors are not to go out around the world making much of themselves. Ambassadors are not to lift up their own way of doing things, their own opinions, their own names. They are to go as representatives of someone else. In fact, you could say that an ambassador who goes out into the world who's so consumed with himself and so motivated by people worshiping and honoring him, is at best misguided, but at worst, a traitor. Someone who has betrayed what he was called to do, betraying the one who sent him. If one is sent by a great king to go out and be an ambassador on his behalf, he can't go about promoting himself to others. His job is to promote the king. And so we too are ambassadors of King Jesus. We are those who are called, commissioned to go out and promote the Lord of glory, to hold Him forth as the Savior of the world. 
and a prideful, self-exalting missionary will lack converts. This is important for us to remember because it's a constant temptation for us to exalt ourselves. Did you know that um, even though you're saved, you're still a little bit sinful? (laughs) Even though you've been born again, Christian, there's still, as I think it was Spurgeon who said that old man, you can feel his bones move every now and then. You've been born again, but the residue of sin lingers and Pride still hovers as a constant temptation in our lives. We are so prone, so tempted to consider how others see us and to present ourselves before others for our own exaltation. Proverbs says that the fear of man is a snare, but how often we just run right back into that trap. This is the hypocrisy of the Pharisees where we elevate ourselves before others. So often it has to do in the church with elevating opinions while ignoring the commands of God, elevating our own outward deeds that other people think are so great, but ignoring what flows from the heart that we've been called to do. We become misguided ambassadors. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, Paul writes to this pastor, telling him about those who will come along and exalt themselves. Instead of exalting Christ as Lord, they will exalt themselves. He says in 1 Timothy 4.1 that the Spirit explicitly says, in the later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage, and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the Word of God and prayer. So Paul here is combating what false teaching is about to come, he says, There'll be those who will forbid marriage, those who forbid eating of certain foods. And why are they doing that? It's not because they are proclaiming Christ Jesus as Lord, is it? It's because they've elevated their own opinions. It's because they've gone in a misguided direction and they've placed their own opinions over the commands of the Lord, preaching self, not Christ. And there are many who do this. When Paul was in prison, in Philippians chapter 1, he talked about there were some preaching Christ for selfish gain. Can you imagine this? Preaching Christ for selfish gain? Instead of being a tool in God's hand, you're taking the Son of God and putting Him as a tool in your hand for your own glory? Very sick and twisted stuff. But Paul says in Philippians 1 about these people and What's happening, he says, some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. 
So Paul here is in prison. You can bet he was preaching. He was seeking to reach the prison guard. Anybody who was in his vicinity, no matter where he was, the Apostle Paul was always seeking to do what? Proclaim Christ Jesus as Lord, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. That was his mission in life, to proclaim Christ as Lord. And he says, even though there are others around him who are preaching Christ out of selfish motive, he is still finding reason to rejoice because Christ is being proclaimed. That's amazing that Paul could see how God would even use a broken stick to draw a straight line. Some preach Christ from selfish gain, but our commission is to imitate Paul in preaching Christ Jesus as Lord. And the way that we can fight against this temptation to be prideful, the way that we can fight against any kind of selfish ambition that creeps its way into Christian ministry, where you're seeking to exalt yourself, sometimes even subconsciously, The way that we can fight against this is what this verse says, to preach Jesus as Lord. When we're preaching Jesus as Lord, not as pal, not as buddy, not as assistant or co-pilot or anything like that, He's not your life coach, but He's your Lord. When we do this, and He's the focus of our thinking and our communication, His exalted status as both Lord and God, as the Apostle Thomas declared. He will be constantly exalted, won't He? If we are truly, from the heart, thinking of and preaching Christ as Lord, He will be exalted in our lives. This is the antidote for any kind of prideful approach to ministry, seeking any selfish gain. Jesus is the one to whom we owe all of life. He is the one for whom we must live. As John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. A genuine believer in the gospel must continue to go back to see our Savior's face and what he has done, that we would continually seek his lordship to be lifted up among all men. In MacArthur's commentary, he wrote, A true look into the face of Jesus is the most humbling experience possible. Those who love Christ and are devoted to serving Him will be self-effacing, not self-exalting. And they will also humbly serve God's people. And that's where Paul goes here in verse 5. It's not only that we're preaching Christ as Lord at the expense of preaching ourselves, but look here too, he says in verse 5 that, They are presenting themselves as your bondservants, the Corinthians' bondservants, for Jesus' sake. So as Christians, we are not only to focus on the content of our communication, that Christ is Lord, but we are also to focus on our manner of life, that we are slaves, not only slaves of God, but slaves one to another. You were saved to be a slave. Actually, there's never a time in your life when you're not a slave. It's just your master changes for those who are born again, for those who have come to know the Lord. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus has called us out of the darkness, out of Satan's realm for service. We are servants of God 
to prioritize His will in holiness and in the truth. Turn with me one more time outside of 2 Corinthians to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. I want you to see how God has saved you for service to live in a new way, to live outside of Satan's domain in the kingdom of light. Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17. Again, this is the Apostle Paul writing, saying, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We are servants of God now as Christians, and we serve God in holiness, and we serve God in truth. We are to lay aside, to set aside, to repudiate and reject the former manner of life, the dark way of life, the lifestyle that reflects a calloused heart. And we are to embrace the Christ life for our life, to embrace the servanthood of Jesus in the way that we live. And perhaps shockingly, in addition to that, we learn in 2 Corinthians 4, 5 that we are not just servants of God, generally speaking, but we are servants of others. This is the only place in the New Testament where Paul writes this way, where he says he's a slave of his converts. But here it is. He says, not only do we preach Christ Jesus as Lord, but they present themselves as your slaves. Dear Corinthians, we are your slaves, Paul is saying. What business did the Corinthians have being masters over anyone? You read through that letter of 1 Corinthians and they were so jacked up, weren't they? I mean, they were just the most messed up church you could imagine. And you're reading and you're thinking, Paul, were they really Christians? Paul, were these people really believers? Look at what they were doing. Yet he calls them believers. And he says, I'm your slave. The apostle who was knocked off his horse by the Lord of glory. The apostle who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write. The apostle who could work signs and wonders to prove his apostleship. He goes to these weak, immature, always fighting with themselves Corinthians and says, how can I serve you? What humility this is. What love. And we are to imitate him in this. It says in Ephesians 5.21 that we are to submit to one another in the church. We yield to one another. We don't go about forcing our own way, but we go about preaching Christ as Lord and presenting ourselves as servants one to another. How can we serve each other today? That should be on our minds. 
Could you honestly this morning look around at this body of believers and say to yourself, I'm a slave of these people? It's something to think about. Do you consider yourself a bondservant of God's people in the truth, in love, as you proclaim Christ as Lord? Remember, Paul asked all the way back in chapter 2, he asked the question, who is sufficient for these things? It's that question that just kind of hovers for a bit. And I think all of this, that what follows in chapter 3 and into chapter 4, I think this is Paul's answer. We are sufficient for these things. We are sufficient for the Christian life. We are sufficient for Christian ministry in the church and in the community. When we have these two things going on, proclaiming Christ as Lord from the heart and presenting ourselves not as people who are over others, but finding ourselves approaching others as their servants. You're sufficient for these things, Christian. When Christ is Lord in your heart and you are a servant of others. We are servants of a new covenant, Paul said in chapter 3, verse 6. And there's no doubt about it. This new covenant ministry is glorious. Paul spent a lot of time on that. But don't miss this. Just because the new covenant ministry is glorious, that doesn't mean you are. The ministry is glorious, but we are not. Yet we have been equipped by God to be ministers of the covenant, and we have a duty to go. David Garland, in his commentary, said, God is not interested in bestowing private illumination and does not intend for the light to stay hidden in our hearts. God caused the explosion of divine light in Paul's heart so that he might preach to the Gentiles. And you better believe, Christian, that He caused that explosion in your heart for a similar purpose, to go out and to proclaim His Lordship and to go out presenting yourselves as servants to others. And in this way, you are a tool in the hand of God to reach the lost. What a privilege this is. What a privilege to be used of God in this way. Let's consider our participation in the new covenant ministry thanking God every step of the way, that we're no longer feeling our way through life in blindness, but that we go through with the light of the glory of God, the knowledge of God in the face of Christ that we have in the gospel. And let's consider how He would use us to reach others. Let's pray. Father, You are the Lord of glory. We love You. And we are yours because of your sovereign grace, how you have come into our lives and you have dispelled the darkness from our hearts, establishing your light, establishing your truth in holiness. And Lord, we ask that you would help us this week, as, even today as we leave this place, that we go out looking for opportunities to share your good news, that you would empower us by your Spirit and that you would give us great boldness and hope as we combat the forces of darkness with this message you've given us and this manner of life of service. Lord, thank you so much that you never leave us or forsake us, and that each day your mercies are brand new. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.